Buy low, sell high. Very easy to say, but not always so easy to do. For example, high interest rates are hurting the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices in a lot of markets are falling, even for many of the best assets. So it's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com pockets, fundrise.com pockets. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. You ever feel like your vacation rental sits empty too often? Missing out on potential income? Look, you're not alone. Many property owners struggle with underperforming bookings and the complexities of property management. But here's some good news. Vacasa outperforms other property managers in 92% of the markets they operate. They've helped homeowners like you increase their bookings by an average of 24%, turning those empty days into profitable opportunities. Want to see what your earnings could look like with Vacasa? Visit biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, and get a free personalized income estimate today. That's biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. Top real estate investors love to talk about how they save so much on taxes, but how are they able to build rental property empires while skirting Uncle Sam? 1031 Exchanges. 1031 exchanges allow you to defer capital gains taxes while you sell an investment property, exchanging your old property for a bigger, better one and avoiding the tax man while you do it. And that's where First American Exchange Company comes in. They're the leaders in 1031 exchanges. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting, First American Exchange can help you with simple rental property exchanges, complex commercial real estate investments, reverse exchanges, and more. Don't let your taxes eat into your profits. Visit First American Exchange Company at firstexchange.com. Or call them at 800-556-2520. That's firstexchange.com or 800-556-2520. Keep your money in your pocket and propel your portfolio further at firstexchange.com. First American Exchange Company does not provide tax or legal advice. Consult your financial, real estate, tax, or legal advisor about your circumstances. First American Exchange Company. Safe, smart, secure. Hey everyone, welcome to On The Market. I'm your host, Dave Meyer. And today we are gonna talk about one of the most common questions I get about the housing market and one of the most commonly misunderstood elements of the housing market and the entire investing landscape, and that is the new construction market. Because often, and I am definitely guilty of this, we talk about, quote unquote, the housing market as if it's just this one big thing and everything in the entire national housing market moves in one direction. But if you're experienced with real estate or you listen to this show, you know that that's not true. When I talk about the housing market, quote unquote, I'm talking about the national housing market. But of course, there are regional markets and we're seeing that play out a lot right now where super expensive, unaffordable markets like Boise or Austin are starting to see price retreats, whereas other markets like Chicago or Boston are still doing pretty well. So that's one way that the national housing market is segmented. It can be national, it can be regional. But the other one that is not talked about as much, at least on this show and in other media outlets that I listen to, is the difference between the new construction market 
and the existing homes market. And just to be clear, hopefully this is self-evident, but new construction is just houses that are built and you know you, people buy them for the first time. Existing homes is a home that is already owned by a homeowner or potentially another investor, and they are reselling it. So these are the two different markets. There's new construction and there's existing homes that we're talking about today. And there have always been different dynamics in these two markets. But as we enter this new phase of the housing market, I personally think it's a correction that we're entering. I think it's important to understand how these two markets are different. And, you know, normally on the show, we we are when we generally talk about the housing market, we're talking about these existing home sales. And because this is where most people operate, right? Most investors, most flippers, most wholesalers, and even short-term rental and buy and hold investors mostly operate in this existing home sale. So that's why we talk about it most of the time. But new construction has huge implications, not just for the housing market and for individual investments, but it also has a huge impact on GDP, like the entire US economy, and it even has impact on renters. So we wanna talk about this to help you understand where the housing market in general is going. So we're gonna zoom in on this new construction question today uh, and fill you in. The other thing I just want you to take note of is that over the next couple of weeks, we are going to have some shows where we're bringing in some guests, some builders, some developers to talk about the current market conditions. And they're going to be incredible shows. These are super experienced, really cool people. Uh, But I wanted to give you a background on the new construction market so that when you listen to these episodes over the next couple of weeks, you have a good understanding of what's happening and uh, some sort of the dynamics in the new construction market. So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Super excited. I think this is gonna be really eye-opening for people to see the differences and how these two markets work. So definitely stick around for it. We're gonna jump right in, but first we're gonna take a quick break. I'm curious, have you been struggling to keep your vacation rental booked? I totally get it. It's tough to manage and keep filled. But we found something that really works. It's called Vacasa. They've seriously changed the game for a lot of the BP audience. In almost every market they're in, Vacasa manages to fill up the calendar more than anyone else. And get this, the average Vacasa user sees about 24% more bookings than with other managers. That's a lot of extra income. Curious to see what you could be earning? You can get a personalized income estimate right there. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised at what Vacasa can do for you. Check out biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa, spelled V-A-C-A-S-A, biggerpockets.com slash Vacasa. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Seeking the truth never gets old. 
Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games. First up today, when we're looking at the new construction market, let's just look at where we are today. Then I'm going to dive into some of the background context and explain the three things, the three main takeaways that I have uh, seen based on the dynamics of the new home market. So the first thing is, as of July 2022, we have seen that the median new home price, so new construction, fresh off the lot is $440,000. And that's come down a little bit. It actually peaked back in April and it is down 4% off of its April high, which is pretty significant, but it's still up year over year. So compared to last July, it's still up 8%. And that sort of mimics the dynamic that we are seeing in the existing home market, uh, but the existing home market is much less expensive. So it's about $400,000 in July, so about 10% less than new homes. And although existing homes are coming off their high, existing homes are only down about 2.5%, whereas new homes are down about 4%. So we're already seeing that new homes they are coming down off their highs faster than existing homes. And this is not super surprising. This is typically what happens. And the main reason it is happening is because the volume of sales is going down. Just fewer people, fewer home buyers out there want to buy new construction. And that's probably because it's more expensive, right? I just told you it's about at least 10% more expensive to buy a new home. And so we're seeing the volume, the total amount of home sales really come down. It was at about 830,000 back in January and now it is at 500,000. So that is a huge reduction in the number of people who want those homes. That means there is less demand and as we've been talking about all year when demand drops off that's when prices start to fall and that's exactly what we're seeing 4% off of its high. Builders are also understanding that there is a lack of demand. And in August, almost 20% of builders said that they are starting to slash prices and they are offering incentives. So this is a big departure, right? From where we were a couple months ago, where people were lining up out the door to get their name on a wait list just for new construction. People were moving into things that didn't even have garage doors. It was crazy. Now, the situation has entirely flipped and it's much, much more of a buyer's market to the point where back in August, 20% of builders were offering incentives to buyers. They're, they're offering discounts to get people into these homes. And as we'll see over the course of this episode, it's probably just the beginning of that dynamic. But if you're thinking that, you know, this is going to be uh, terrible for builders, they're all going to go out of business and we're going to see something like we saw at the end of the Great Recession, that is probably not true. So John Burns, who was on this show a couple of weeks ago, his company did some awesome research and showed that prices for new construction can actually come down 8% 
and still make their historical margins. Things for builders and for developers have been so good over the last couple of months that they could drop prices for their houses 8% and they could still make just as much as money as they used to prior to the pandemic. So if you think this could be a cascading effect, it could, but not yet because builders have a lot of cushion in their margins. You know, we always talk, James always talks on the show about how you want to add cushion to your margins. Well, builders have been doing that. They have excellent margins right now and they can see home prices come down really significantly, 8% without them really even impacting what they would normally expect in years like 2018, 2019 and before all of that. So we are seeing demand drop. And the consequence of that so far is that prices are starting to drop. I personally think prices are going to drop even more than the 4% that they have. I think with new construction, we're going to see it go down at least 8% and maybe a little bit more, but we'll see. But the other thing that you have to understand about where we are now is that when demand drops and prices drop, so does construction. I mean, if you were a builder, right, and you were seeing less demand, you were seeing worse margins, you'd probably stop buying too, right? And so there is this index, it's called the National Association of Home Builders, this big trade organization. And what they do is they survey some of the biggest builders in the country every single month for their sentiment, because that is a great lead indicator. So we talk about on the show quite a lot, we wanna look at lead indicators. It helps us understand what might come next. Nothing predicts the future perfectly, but it helps us understand sort of where things are going. And this National Association of Home Builders Sentiment Index has fallen seven months in a row. Every single month over the course of 2022, we have seen this index decline, and it is at a very low point right now. Relatively, it's at about 50. Um, last year, we were above 80, above 90. And so previously, builders were feeling great. We were in this low interest rate environment and everything was awesome. And now, just like everything else, we're seeing interest rates go up, affordability is declining. And because new homes are more expensive than existing homes, they are getting hurt hardest by the lack of affordability. And we are starting to see builder sentiment go down, which is sort of naturally. And this means that construction is starting to slow. We're actually already starting to see construction slow a bit. Um, it's come down off of its high, and we're gonna get into some of the details of that in a little bit. But that's significant for the economy because when construction slows, it slows down a lot of other things in the economy. So overall, that's where we are right now. We are starting to see demand fall off in a very significant way for new homes. We're seeing inventory start to tick up prices start to go down. So that doesn't bode well for new construction, right? Prices are coming down. Not a lot of people want it. And as a result, construction is likely to slow. We're seeing builders start to offer incentives. And we are seeing that new home market is decelerating and even going negative faster than the existing home sale market. Now, it's important to point out that new construction is only about 11% of the total market. So it's not like this is going to drive the entire housing market. But as I'm going to show over the rest of this episode, there are three things that really are impacted by this slowdown in new construction. And they have long lasting implications for the whole housing market, not just the new housing market, but for everything that investors 
investors need to be thinking about, there's these three big implications. So I'm going to jump into those. And the first implication for current market conditions in the new home market is the housing shortage. Now, you might have heard over the last couple of years that there is a housing shortage in the United States. And the estimates for how big the housing shortage is vary pretty widely. On the low end, you see people like Moody's Analytics, and they think it's about one and a half million. On the high end, we have NAR, the National Association of Realtors. They think it's about seven million. Freddie Mac is right in between, about five million. So either way, I think almost every analytics organization that can track these kinds of things believes that we have a housing shortage in the United States. And that's a problem. That is one of the reasons why home prices have been going up. It's why rents have been going up, because when there's not enough supply, that pushes prices up. And of course, the reason we have a home shortage is not enough homes have been built. And I know that's probably pretty obvious, but that's sort of what happened. And let me just quickly provide a little history lesson about what happened since the Great Recession. See, construction has basically been on this roller coaster since the the turn of the century. And when I look at the total number of units under construction, you see that it's very, very sensitive to economic cycles. So when demand is up, builders build. When demand shrinks, they stop building. And we see this pattern going back basically to every single recession in the 1960s. And this is again, a great lead indicator. We see new construction start to drop off before we're even in a recession. And of course, right now we don't know if we're in a recession, but we're starting to see construction drop off. So it's another indicator that we're probably in a recession or close to a recession. But basically what's going on is that when when you see a slowdown in economic activity, you see a downward trend in construction. And this normally happens. It's a normal thing. Economies and the housing market are very cyclical. But in the Great Recession, things were way worse. It was sort of this overcompensation. We saw a decline in economic activity and the corresponding decline in construction was way more than it ever has, right? Like normally in a recession, construction goes down, we build less units, but it's not like we build nothing, you know? That's sort of what happened in the Great Recession. Back in January of 2006, we were building 1.3 million units on an annualized rate. 2.3, excuse me, 2.3 million units. In April of 2009, about three years later, we were down to under 500,000, right? We went from 2.3 million to under 500,000. That's like about 20%. We dropped 80% off, which is crazy just in three years. And this entire industry, the entire construction industry was gutted. People changed jobs. You know, like if you're not building, you go find another job. Building construction companies just completely went out of business. And then starting, you know, this happened in the late 2000s, 2010, and then 2011. And then starting in mid 2011, construction started to pick up again. But it was really slow, right? All these people left their jobs, construction companies went out of business. You can't just like snap and turn things back on. (laughs) You know, we've all sort of learned this lesson from COVID that like when these machines of production slow down and people change jobs and they do something else, you can't just fire it back up again. And so that's sort of what happened with construction in the 2010s. And 
Luckily, over the course of the 2010s, we were getting pretty close to historical averages. We were at about 1.7 million, but that's way, which is still, by the way, I should mention, even at 1.7 million uh, pre-pandemic, that's way below where it was like in the 2000s bubble. But in the last years, it's gone up and we've started to build more and more and more. And now in you know, we reached 1.8 million in April 2022, which was great because we were starting to sort of erase some of the housing shortage. But now it's starting to come back down and we're at 1.44 million as of August, which is like sort of the rate we were back in the 1990s. And so this is basically a problem for the long term housing supply in the US. Now, I think it's right that construction is coming down right now because you don't want to flood the market with new units when demand is low, because that means there's going to be units sitting vacant and the prices are going to come down and that causes its own problem. But to erase the housing shortage, whether it's 1.5 million units or it's 7 million units, we need to be building above the immediate demand to start cutting into that deficit that we've had, right? Just like in COVID, basically, it's like if you shut down a factory and no nothing's being produced, right? Like, let's say it's cars and like you shut down a factory and no cars are being made, but we were still allowing people to make orders, right? That's basically what happened in the US. People were still forming families. They still wanted homes, but we weren't building enough of them. And so there's this backlog and we're behind. And if construction comes down for an extended period of time, that means that we could see the housing shortage prolonged in the US. So that's, I think, an issue long-term because personally, I think... This is just an opinion. It's not a fact. I believe that the levels of affordability that we're at in the U.S. are not good for people, right? It's too expensive for people to buy a home. It's pushing up rent prices to the point where people can't afford it. And that might sound you know, good for rental property investors, but I don't believe that to be true. I personally prefer a very stable housing market where things go up around the cost of inflation, maybe a bit more, rent grows gradually, and we're not seeing these wild fluctuations right now. And so I believe the U.S. needs more housing supply. That is the solution to these wild swings in the housing market. It's the solution to the affordability problems that we're having. And unfortunately, given market conditions, construction is likely going to slow. Now, there is one encouraging fact that we're seeing here is that although construction starts are starting to go down, single families are down a lot. They're down 16% year over year. So builders don't want to build single families, but multifamily is still up. So that's pretty good when we talk about the overall housing supply that people still you know, largely myself included, believe in the long-term viability of multifamily investing. And so although it's slowing down, builders are still building that. One reason is because there's more margin for error with multifamily. And the second is it takes a long time to build multifamily. So if it takes three years to build, you know, a new apartment complex to, from permitting to, you know, entitlement, permitting, uh, building, all this lease up, you know, all these things, Maybe they're foreseeing that we'll be in a different economic cycle. Things will start be growing again three years from now. Not a bad bet. So I think that's encouraging for the housing shortage, but it's something to look at. So that's my number one takeaway is that for now, it's unlikely we're going to see a lot of progress in increasing the total amount of housing in the U.S. And that 
you know, puts upward pressure on the housing market over the future. As long as we are undersupplied, there will be this undercurrent of upward pressure on housing prices, even all other things considered, right? So that's just something to consider. That's number one. The second thing that I think you should take away from this market conditions is that economic activity is really driven by construction, like to a really remarkable amount. So there is this study, again, by the National Association of Home Builders that shows that housing's combined contribution generally contributes 15 to 18% of GDP. That is huge. It's, a, you know, 15 to 18% of the entire country's economy is depending on housing. And they actually broke it out in two ways, which I think is super cool. Um, the first is residential investment. So this is three to 5% of GDP, which basically includes construction. So this is construction of single family residences, multifamily, uh, remodeling, manufactured homes, broker's fees. So this is basically the building and selling of new houses and major renovations. So that's three to 5% of GDP. And so we're starting to see that decline and that could impact GDP. Another indication that we could be heading towards a recession or might already be in one is because construction is slowing down and it is such a major driver of GDP. Um, that is something to, con to consider. The second way that housing contributes to GDP is consumption on housing services. So this is like rent um, and utilities and that sort of stuff. And personally, I don't think that's going to be going down as much. If we do enter a major job loss recession, we could see that slow down. But for now, and the purposes of this episode, I really just want to point out that residential construction is probably going to come down. Rent, even in recessions, usually doesn't come down very much, maybe a little bit, but not as much as housing prices might. Um, and so uh, that is something to consider is that if you are concerned about a recession, about job losses, that sort of stuff, construction is going down and that could bring other sort of tangential parts of the economy down with it. I'm not talking about a crash. We're talking about a couple percentage points, but there could be some, you know, construction related job loss and some of the other industries that surround construction could see sort of this ricochet domino effect thing. The third thing. So the first thing again was the housing shortage. Second thing is GDP. And the third is sort of speculation on my part, um, but I wanted to bring it up because it's something I'm sort of interested in and that's existing home prices. So this is anecdotal again, not scientific, but over the course of history, there has been this spread between the pricing of new construction and existing homes. And previously, it could be up to 30%. Sometimes it's about 20%. But recently, you know, it, back in 2018, it was about 25%. So if you were going to buy the, you know, the median new home, it was about 25% more expensive than the median existing home. And that's pretty significant. 25% is a lot, right? You know, if you're buying a, that's the difference between a 400,000 and a $500,000 house. So they're less expensive to maintain. So that's good, but you have a bigger down payment, that sort of thing. So that's a big premium, but the spread between new and existing homes has really, really compressed over the last couple of years. And that's happened for a few reasons, mostly because there's just not a lot of inventory for existing homes. And so existing home prices have gone up. But 
all things being equal, new construction tends to be better, right? Like I, at least for me, if I was buying like a, you know, a three bed, two bath house that was 200 square, 2000 square feet, the suburbs, and they're both like similar houses, I'd choose the new one, right? It's probably better building quality, new materials, things aren't used, they're in better condition. But right now the the premium is pretty small. So it's like there's only an 8% premium right now. So it's only, you know, it used to be about 25% more expensive to buy a new house. Now it's only 8%. And we're starting to see these concessions come in. And so this is just my theory, but as new home starts, you know, new home prices start to come down, it might suck some of the demand out of existing home sales, right? Because if builders are offering these incentives and you can get a new home for very little more than an existing home, that could suck some demand of the existing home market and have existing home prices fall a little bit more than they used to be. So I don't know if that's true. This is just sort of a theory. It's not a dynamic that I've actually seen before where um, we've seen new home prices so close to existing homes. Um, so that's something to keep an eye out for. Uh, again, it's not scientific. This is just my personal uh, opinion and something that I'm kind of interested in. So that's what I got for you today. Hopefully this is a useful background for you. Just to summarize what's going on, new home sales, existing home sales, very different markets traditionally. What happens in one doesn't necessarily happen in the other. And we're already starting to see that prices the new home market are falling faster, inventory shooting up a lot faster, uh, and, and we're starting to see a correction there more quickly than the existing home sales market. This has huge implications for the economy because construction is a major driver of jobs and GDP. It's important for the long-term supply for U.S. housing because when construction stops, it further exacerbates the housing supply shortage that we have in the United States, and it could bleed into the existing home sales market. Now, existing home sales are also coming off their peak, but I think what happens with these two markets, they're going to interplay in a unique way that we've never seen before, um, and it's something to keep an eye out for. Hopefully this is useful background for you because over the next couple of weeks, we, as I said at the top of the show, we are going to have some new people, some builders, some developers talk about the state of the construction industry. And I want you to understand, even if you don't buy existing homes, why this is important and why it matters for investors, even who people who only rehab homes or buy existing home sales. I want you to understand that what happens with builders, what happens with developers and in the new home sales market does impact the industry entire housing market and is super important. Thank you all so much for listening. I always appreciate you giving us feedback. If you want to do that on YouTube, it's a great place to do that. You can also hit me up on Instagram where I am at the data deli. And if you like this episode or just love on the market, we really, really appreciate if you give us a five-star review on either Spotify or Apple. It's a huge help. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you again next time on the market. On the Market is created by me, Dave Meyer, and Kaylin Bennett. Produced by Kaylin Bennett. Editing by Joel Esparza and Onyx Media. Copywriting by Nate Weintraub. And a very special thanks to the entire Bigger Pockets team. The content on the show On the Market are opinions only. All listeners should independently verify data points, opinions, and investment strategies.
Investing in small multifamily properties is probably the most popular niche in the entire Bigger Pockets community, and there's a good reason for that. You can put as little as 3.5% down and own up to four units. So just think about that for a second. You can house hack where you live in one of the units, but in addition to having a place to live, you still have three different groups of tenants helping to pay down your mortgage each month. You have four kitchens and bathrooms that you could add value to to build equity. You could also turn one or more of the properties into a short-term rental or a medium-term rental. And all of this, what I'm describing here, is just one transaction. But of course, the question is, where do you find one of these small multifamily properties that you can afford? Which markets and which deals are best for you? How about after you close? How do you manage it? Optimize it. Keep scaling and living your life without being tied down by four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants. These are all great questions. And luckily for you, they're going to be answered in the upcoming Small Multifamily Bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient, great strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four today and join us in the Small Multifamily Bootcamp. I'll see you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investments in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.